Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and it's Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Second lecture for Sunday, it's afternoon, the 5th of March, 2023. Lecture 42 in Immunoepigenetics, commencing now. So, we have been discussing the immature cluster of T-all that included specific clinical cases with a HOX-A activating abnormality that was involved in the proliferation of oncogenic events. I mentioned to you what HOX genes are. Remember, they're homeobox genes encoding evolutionarily highly conserved homeodomain-containing transcription factors. And these transcription factors have a whole host of um, transcriptomic repertoire. But if you look at them physiologically, they're involved in embryogenesis and also, unfortunately, many aspects of tumor genesis. And that's because Hox genes are associated with the, the specific cell identity terminal differentiation. And that, of course, occurs during early embryonic development and also occurs all the way up to about two years old postnatally in humans. So any kind of dysregulation of a Hox gene, once that differentiation of cell type has occurred, would, without much surprise, be at least potentially associated with human cancer. So, same here with T, acute lymphoblastic leukemia. We were just getting into this last time. So, now, of these HOXA activating genetic loci corruptions, a large component of them have an effect on the expression of another gene called MEF2C, because HOXA remembers transcription factor, actually a component domain of them. Now, MEF2C is corrupted by HOXA inappropriate transcriptional activation during chromatin retailering, such that you get rearrangements of the exons of the MEF2C. So MEF2C associated cofactors then become co-corrupted because of the splice variation that was corrupted by the HOX-A induced mutation. And one of the other cofactors along with MEF2C that becomes corrupted is NCoA2. So looking at T all cell lines, it was shown that uh, human cell lines, that MEF2C is indeed a transcriptional regulator that is associated with the expression inappropriately of many genes that are linked to immature T all. Now, what are these genes? We've mentioned two already. 
the LMO2, the, and then the LYL1, and a third one I'll bring up right now, which is the hex, that is H-hex. Now, what this suggests is that the MEF2C, acting as a now altered transcription factor because of the altered HOX-A activation of a transcriptional event. You get what this is about. It's all epigenomic alteration. All of it is because it's not related to any specific mutation, sensu stricto in any of these genes. It has to do with the alteration of the activity of transcription factors in the transcriptional complex, thus driving uh, gene expression. Okay. So it suggests then that this MEF2C causes T cell differential blockade of an immature stage of normal T cell differentiation, thus inducing a lymphoblastomic leukemia. All right, so. I think that's pretty clear without going into any more detail. So what about this protein, the MEF2C? It's 187 kilobases. It's a member of uh, a transcription enhancer uh, family we talked about many times. It's called the MADS-BOX. So the MADS-BOX transcription enhancer factor 2 is the MEF2. It's a big family of proteins. The MEF2C has been initially implicated in muscle function, although it has been related to endochondral ossification. And as such, it has a potential regulatory uh, role in uh, SOST gene expression by interacting with conserved enhancers. Now, this was all isolated and reported in a paper in papers studying the Van Buchem's disease, which I will not give you a phenotype on. You can look it up. So the first report implicating variants in the MEF2C had to do with bone marrow dystrophy variation in Northern Europeans. And that came from a meta-analysis of the genes that are expressed in those cell lines. Okay. So you get now how a gene transcriptional phenomena can be traced back through the literature to examine where was the gene first isolated, what was its uh, component purpose in that system, and then translating that through these puns are intended to determine how that polypeptide could be malfunctioning as a transcriptional regulator in T lymphocytes. Okay. So there's a lot of detail here I'm not going to be able to talk about because I'd have to get into this Buchan's disease, which is a really interesting disorder. But I'm not going to do that because I'm trying to move on with immunoepigenetics. But I encourage you to go back and look at this. That's spelled B-U-C-H-E-M, apostrophe S, Buchan's disease. Okay. So I'm going to move on.
Now, paper published back in 2014 um, explained the following to me, and I will relate it to you. It's talking once again about <coughs> HDACs. Remember, HDACs are histonideacetylases, and a family of HDACs, the major family, are called sirtuins. Now, sirtuins can be deacetylases, sensu stricto to histones, but sirtuins can also be deacylases. And those do not have to be only on lysine residues associated with histones and chromatin. They could be other polypeptides that have been isolated. But normally, those isolated proteins finding their way into the nucleus, therefore involved in gene expression. Okay. So HDACs are essential for the cardiac hypertrophy we see in heart disease. And what they do in that system is, of course, they faithfully remove acetate from chromatin. And in so doing, they're collapsing the chromatin from euchromatin, which is highly, typically, highly active, to heterochromatin, which is condensed and much less active. It doesn't mean inactive. It means selectively inactivated. We talked about that before, that kind of phenotype. And you remember that HDACs, uh, and we talked a lot about these, you find them in three main classes. Um, class one has HDACs one, two, three, and eight. Class two has HDACs four, five, six, seven, and nine. And class three are all the sirtuins, right? So the class 2 HDACs are anti-hypertrophic, while class 1 are pro-hypertrophic. It's in the cardiac muscle. Now, a pharmacological inhibition of just class 1 HDACs would do what, given that definition I just gave you? It should inhibit cardiac hypertrophy. And what follows inhibition of cardiac hypertrophy is a decrease in the pressure overload to the muscle. So what's involved here? Protein kinase C and CAMK, that kinase, okay, CAM kinase, because both PKC and CAM kinase phosphorylate class 2 HDACs. When they phosphorylate class 2 HDACs, what happens? They cause a mobilization of the HDAC to the nucleus. Okay. So when you phosphorylate HDACs, you induce nuclear export. When you dephosphorylate HDACs, they are found in the nucleus. Okay. I want, I, I'm I want to make sure you understand the phosphorylation of the HDAC induces nuclear exportation, not importation. So when you do that, what happens? You're de-repressing targeted genes, right? Because the HDAC is going to be involved in repressing the genes. Why? 
because it's going to be a deacetylating histone. Deacetylating histone makes heterochromatin. Heterochromatin, in a generic way, represses gene expression. You see? So you have to follow along on the valence here and on the frequency and amplitude of the signal. Right? So, specifically, HDAC5 and 9 are involved in nuclear mutations that demonstrate quite clearly that the typical class 2 HDACs are anti-hypertrophic. And they are anti-hypertrophic because they inhibit hypertrophic growth of the cardiac muscle. Now, converse to that, you might guess, that HDAC5 and HDAC9 gene-deleted murine model mice will show what? Obviously, hypertrophy. And in this case, when you do the knockout, especially the double knockout of HDAC5 and HDAC9 in mice, you get spontaneous hypertrophy. And that is associated with aging. And ultimately, you get enhanced hypertrophy that becomes pathological. You get hypertrophic cardiovascular heart disease. All right. So now you know sirtuins like SIRT3 are elevated as well during hypertrophy. And they're believed, again, to act like a negative regulator of hypertrophy. So CERT3 expressing mice are actually protected from hypertrophy, hypertrophic stimuli. Whereas CERT3 knockout mice rapidly develop cardiac hypertrophy. Okay. So what does that tell us? That tells us once again, this whole concept of epigenetic alteration of histones, the specific covalent modification being acetate added to lysine residues most often, sometimes the serine and threonine, but the most canonical and the one here for sure is with a lysine residue. When lysine is added via histone acetyltransferase, which could be part of the transcription factor complex, <clears throat> that will open up chromatin and allow for massive amount of gene expression. Whereas a deacetylase like CERT3 is going to cause condensation of the chromatin. Condensation of the chromatin to heterochromatin from euchromatin means a decrease in global gene expression. But nevertheless, specific, sometimes elevation of discrete unique transcripts. So I'm telling you when you get a CERT3 deficient mouse and you develop hypertrophy, that means that when you remove the deacetylase activity on the lysine residues, on the histones, when you remove that, what happens? You don't deacetylate, right? because the CERT3 is a deacetylase. So CERT3 deficiency means no deacetylation. And when that happens, 
you get a more robust transcriptome, which in this particular pathological network causes cardiac hypertrophy. Now, final point here, CERT-3, along with being a deacetylase and functioning as one, will activate FOXO3A. And what is that? What, what, what will that ha what happens then? The antioxidant genes encoding manganese superoxide dismutase and catalase. So when you get deacetylation as composed by CERT3, which is a deacetylase, card carrying class 3 deacetylase, you will activate a transcription factor called FOXO3A because of that deacetylation of histones. And then you'll get antioxidant genes, which of course encode for, among other uh, transcripts, the manganese SOD, uh, that's superoxide, uh, superoxide dismutase, and of course catalase. So what that means is a removal of reactive oxygen. You see? So now isn't that curious? Because I'm just I'm now I'm telling you the unique expression of those genes because of what CERD three does would remove reactive oxygen, you see? So if CERT3 isn't there, you'll have an increase in reactive oxygen, presumably. Okay. So overall, what happens, because CERT3 activates FOXO3 and the antioxidant genes, because of that, transcription factor activation, catalase and, and SOD, that will lead to a suppressed hypertrophy, cardiac hypertrophy, because of the decreased cellular levels of reactive oxygen species. So now you have the whole story there. Now, can we add that to the lymphocyte proliferation? I don't see why not. I mean, even that particular motif. Now, I haven't found the papers that support that this is a the HOX3 moving through the uh, MEF transcription factor, ultimately moving through the three other components to get to the um, HDAC activation or deactivation leading to increased lymphoproliferation. I haven't found those specific papers yet, but reading these background papers, at least now we have a mechanism which is quite linear in logic. If you have a lot of reactive oxygen, you're going to get a lot of hypertrophy. If you have a lot of reactive oxygen, you're going to induce T cell proliferation, especially at an indeterminate, not completely terminally differentiated, that is, state, thus inducing lymphoblastic leukemia. Okay? So remember, this whole system is about how chromatin retailoring. I call it retailoring, not remodeling. Remember, that's my term, retailoring. Probably won't see it in the literature, at least not yet. Maybe in a paper I published, I, I might have used that term. And I call it retailoring because what is tailoring? That's like, well, for example, what do you what do you do when you go to a tailor? I mean, I don't go to a tailor, but if you were able to go to a tailor, that tailor could give you a new suit and not just give you a new suit. That tailor is going to specifically do measurements 
of the body, of your body, and then tailor the suit so it fits you just right. So a nice, finely tailored suit, right? Well, in chromatin, when you're doing acetylation of histones or methylation of CPG island, just for example, they used to call that remodeling. And I always made fun of that because I always thought remodeling sounds like kitchen remodeling or house remodeling. And I always thought that just sounds really weird. What do you mean? Like we're knocking down walls. We're putting in a sink over there. We're reintroducing the wood stove that some fool took out. Um, well, that could be, and that's remodeling. But that's not what's happening in epigenetic alteration of the chromatin. Really, it's more like retrofitting or refitting all the transcription factor components in such a way to fit better for a specific result. And isn't that what the tailor does with your suit? The specific result is to fit your body, to make it so that it fits you and not just anyone else. You see? So I like the retailoring, and that's what I use. <coughs> Anyways. <coughs> Remember that you have all these chromatin retailering complexes, and they're going to have histone acetyltransferases. They're going to have a transcription factor. They're going to be bromodomain readers. Remember, those bromodomain readers will sit on acetylated lysines or methylated lysines, for example, not just those. And sitting on those residues on histones can block or otherwise retailer the molecular interactions at the transcription factor complex so that you either enhance transcription, you diminish transcription, or you alter how transcription proceeds. By that I mean which enhancers become superactivated, that is they are um, visited by the transcription factor complex more often, or enhancer elements are avoided, again, because of scrolling around, retailoring the histones near that start site for transcription of the gene with enhancer elements, promoter elements, splice junctions between exons and introns, all the things that happen in eukaryotic transcription. See? So you have writers or authors of the of that epigenome, those could be acetyltransferase uh, or acetyltransferase for that matter. You have, of course, HDACs, which will remove the acetate. You have demethylases, which will remove methyl groups. And then you have the bromodomain readers, right? And you also have the D and those demethylases, deacetylases, those are erasing epigenetic markers, remember? And that's what happens. In, in fact, classically, you would call those erasers, right? So, for example, a histone acetyltransferase is an author or a writer, whereas an HDAC is an eraser. Okay. So, think about when you have co repressor complexes. A co repressor complex is going to be the kind of complex that sits there prior to any activation or deactivation of that. Transcription factor complex prior to that initial initializing event, say in, at the beginning of this, the driving of this lipoblastic leukemia paradigm that's going to shift that whole differentiation phase of those T lymphocytes, right? Causing 
causing the first stages of the disease. If you have a co-repressor complex, it's more likely to have an HDAC there because the HDAC, if it's functioning as a deacetylase, it's going to compress the chromatin and you'll get less gene expression. But when that HDAC is removed by factors such as the MEF2C, when it gets removed, then you're going to de-repress the chromatin, right? Therefore, you're not going to be able to deacetylate it by, by understanding my, of my uh, theory of what's going on. It's not just my theory, it's what's in the literature. My explanation of it, that's a better term, better word. And so when that happens, you're de-repressing. And so you no longer can deacetylate. So the histone acetylase acetyltransferase can maintain an acetylome, which will maintain an active chromatin tailored for that activation of that transcription site. Okay. So now you get the picture here. Now I know I've talked about this many different ways, right? I've explained this. Um, what what is going on dynamically as an event ontology during active epigenetic retailoring, or you could call it reprogramming of gene expression. Now, hopefully, you see it as an event. And even though you think about something sitting on the chromatin like a repressor, right? Like an HDAC could be a repressor. And it's sitting on there, and when we say sitting on there, you get this idea of this large globular protein sitting on this poor, defenseless, double-stranded DNA, right? And because of that, the RNA polymerase and all of the helicases and all of the enzymes and single-stranded binding proteins necessary to unravel the DNA to be able to get RNA polymerase in there to do its nice, fine transcription, along with all the enhancer elements, promoted elements for the unique gene it's going to uh, transcribe, right? Now I'm, now I'm explaining to you that there's nothing like that. It's not a solid substance, right? It's not a steric phenomenon. It's an event. So these entire sets of processes are constantly in motion, temporally shifting around, moving around, chromatin retailoring, essentially all the time to maintain a dynamic system, a dynamic system that also can be acted on kinetically. Remember, I'm using those pharmacological terms there. Dynamic is what is the acetylation due to gene transcription? And then the kinetic would be what does gene transcription do to the repressor or the activator, right? See, I'm using those terms. So and nevertheless, it's an event ontology. Right? So that's where I think I'm going to leave you today. It's the second lecture for today. I just wanted to bring that home. I wanted to really put in your mind um, the, the real, the absolute beauty of epigenetic retailering, how it functions, always ready to pivot from controlling gene expression, either increasing, decreasing, or maintaining it in a super potential state so that it can be pushed in one direction or another, enhanced or decreased, just saying. All right. So again, this is the uh, 5th of March. Again, I will mention it's uh, Mary O'Brien and Steve Sudstrup's birthday. People I've known long ago. 
Remember, they both were born on the 5th of March. What a memory. Anyway, this is Dr. Dan Guerra uh, from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. As the sun is getting lower in the sky along the Clearwater River in northern Idaho. Saying bye for now.